Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to the Skylight Books podcast series. Uh, my name is Mick. I'm the Assistant Events Manager at Skylight Books and the producer for this podcast. Uh, we're back today with another wonderful new episode of Skylit, the series where we talk to authors and find out what makes their books tick. Uh, today, uh, it's very timely. We have a pre-Academy Award ceremony special Um we have Michael Shulman, the author of Oscar Wars, here on the pod with us today in conversation with his fellow New Yorker writer, Alex Ross. Uh, Michael Shulman is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Her Again, Becoming Meryl Streep. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he has contributed since 2006. His work has also appeared in The New York Times, Vanity Fair, and other publications, his latest book, as I mentioned, is Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, he currently lives in New York City. Uh, Alex Ross has been the music critic of The New Yorker since 1996. His first book, The Rest is Noise, Listening to the 20th Century, was published in 2007 and won a National Book Critics Circle Award. It was also a final for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, an essay collection, listen to this, appeared in 2010. His third book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, was published in 2020. Uh, thank you both for being here, Alex. I'll let you take it away. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's great to be here uh, with Michael. Uh, welcome back to Los Angeles, uh, virtually. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I live in the area of uh, Scottie Books um, most of the time with regular trips back to New York, and it's an absolutely fantastic uh, store. Uh, it was part of the reason why I wanted to live in this neighborhood, actually, um, uh, to begin with. Uh, so it's always great to be in association with this um, fantastic um, institution. Um, so yeah, Michael, um, uh, we've known each other for many, many years um, in the hallowed halls of the New Yorker. Uh, That's <laughs> so right. It's a little less hallowed each time we move. But <laughs> right. <laughs> so no, okay. no. We, we, we date back to uh, the glory days of four times square. Right. Well, I go back even further. I go back. To, uh, yeah, uh, you do. Uh, whatever it was. Um, 43rd Street. But um, uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think we'll, we'll mostly talk about your book, but it might also be fun to chat about being a New Yorker writer and, and and writing books at the New Yorker to the extent that people out there are, are curious uh, about these these odd creatures, uh, the New Yorker writers. Um, but yeah, let's start with the book, uh, which uh, I absolutely loved reading. Um, I've been uh, a, a fan of the uh, Oscar ritual um, since I was a kid uh, and and find it's... Um, it's just, it's just. I, I'm always incredibly excited each year, and then each time at the end of it, I'm always a little disappointed. But somehow that never <laughs> spoils the expectation for the following. Isn't year. that just the story it's of just, life? Yes, exactly. Just always kind of reaching. I think, but I think it's like wanting to recapture this, this the, the the kind of version of it that I encountered when I was a kid. Um, oh, uh, when was when would when did you start watching? When was your? Well, I don't remember exactly. I, I sometime in the. My parents weren't big TV watchers, so it was probably kind of in the early 80s or, or mid 80s. Uh, it started seeping into my consciousness. Um, uh, but yeah, I definitely go back to this kind of somewhat 
itchified kind of bloated uh uh aging showbiz kind of uh incarnation of it and i've always sort of regretted its various attempts to to sort of become hip or something you know, that's so up. funny because you know i'm i'm a bit i'm a little younger than you and i started watching them in the early 90s and i always think of that as the glory days with the billy mm -hmm. crystal medleys um when i go back and watch the 80s ceremonies they they look so like archaic to me like they they're still sort of trying to hold on to that era of like 1970s variety television and they have these you know very gaudy opening numbers um mm -hmm. one of which i write about in the book at length the 1989 notorious right yeah one with uh, a woman's dressed as snow white singing with rob lowe but you know it, this always reminds me like uh lauren michaels always says that people come up to him and they always say that the best era of Saturday Night Live was whenever they started watching as like, you know, kids, as older kids. And I think that's probably true of the Oscars too. Right. Although I, I feel like it was actually in the 90s that that I became somewhat more addicted to it, I think because of the 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 sort of sense of ironic distance that Billy Crystal was able to mm. to create. So there was a sense that, that you know, uh, yeah, th those are the sort of the shows that I vividly remember. But um, but yeah, well, let's let's talk about the book and kind of what what motivated you to to sort of plunge into this, you know, immense history. Um, uh, uh to begin with, uh, the the the, the sheer scope of the of the sort of performances uh, under consideration and sort of year after year, the best picture nominees and, and the actor uh, nominees. Uh, what what sort of led you to to plunge in? It actually grew out of a New Yorker piece. So in 2016, um, the Academy was reckoning with the Oscar so white hashtag movement. And the uh, president of the Academy at the time was Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who was the first black president of the Academy. And they came out with this initiative that they were going to diversify the membership, um, which got a lot of blowback from old timers, people who thought that the Academy was turning politically correct or whatever um a big part of this sort of dust up was that the academy was not only going to bring in new diverse younger more international uh members but they were also going to demote certain people to emeritus status which meant that you couldn't vote if you hadn't really worked in the industry for many years and that just touched on this nerve in hollywood you know like the, i think the greatest fear in hollywood is the fear of obsolescence if you work in this industry and so it just like got under people's skin and there was outcry. So I, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm like one of the only people at the Duke who's really a junkie for the Oscars, like at Vanity Fair, it's everyone there is an Oscars nut. And I'm like one of the only people at our magazine who was like really gunning to write about the Academy Awards. And so I pitched this story and I went out to the Academy and met Cheryl Boon Isaacs and talked to all sorts of different members in the Academy and tried to capture what it was all about. And I learned a lot about Academy history while I was doing that. I mean, sort of what, what created the Academy in the first place. So this piece of mine um, comes out in uh, February or so, um, shortly before the Oscars in 2017. And then I went to the Academy Awards for the first time to cover them for the magazine. And this was the year of the envelope mix-up with Moonlight and La La Land. So I was in the press room when that happened. So the first Academy Awards that I actually attended, something crazy and historic happened. And I sort of saw it as this incredible Hollywood twist ending to this epic year of, uh, you know, Hollywood, much like the rest of the country, having its version of a racial reckoning. 
And that's kind of where I got the idea to do a book that was not just a catalog of every year. Um, those books exist, the sort of yearbook years. Um, but to choose about a dozen moments, years, even a single category that told some larger story about cultural change and do it as in the form of kind of, you know, long form narrative journalism that we do at The New Yorker. So it was kind of like about 12 New Yorker pieces is how I conceived it. Right. Um, you know, I thought you pulled off a really nice balance. I mean, you, you give us, you know, all of the the bonkers uh, stories, or at least, you know, a, a lot of them and the, and, the, and the clash of personalities and the backstage disasters and the onstage you know, disasters and all that. But but there is also this this uh, political or kind of sociological framing uh, so that you're you're using the ceremony at sort of different stages of its history to illustrate kind of larger cultural um, uh, trends, as well as kind of just showing the the, the history of Hollywood itself. Um, and, you know, that's sort of in your subtitle that, that it is a, a history of Hollywood and you you pack an enormous amount of, of movie history uh, into the book, which I think is really uh, definitely done. Um, but going back to the, to the beginning, I was, I was really fascinated by your, your account of the origins of the thing, which I didn't know particularly well. And I mean, would it be going too far to characterize the sort of rationale for starting the Oscars or the Academy itself to begin with as uh, a kind of union busting <laughs> strategy or in a way or... it was. Yeah. It was, so it was basically two things that were happening in 1920s Hollywood that gave rise to the Academy. One was that um, the, by and large, the industry was not unionized. Uh, the crafts people were, but not the actors, writers, directors. And yet actors equity was making inroads, you know, for actors equity, uh, was the union fairly new at the time for stage actors in the East. And so there were signs that, you know, things might change. And people like Louis B. Mayer, who was the all-powerful head of MGM, realized that that would be pretty bad for him because he wanted, uh, you know, undiluted access to his uh, workforce. Uh, and so one of the Academy's original um, purposes you know, awards were very far low down on the list of things that they wanted to do. Um, mostly what they wanted to do was resolve disputes. They publicly, they talked about how they wanted to create harmony among the various factions of the industry. So they arbitrated, you know, labor disputes. If someone was felt they were not paid enough or unfairly fired. And they also oversaw contract negotiations and um, they effectively uh, ran Actors' Equity out of town and delayed unionization for about five years until the Depression really uh, jump-started the labor movement, and uh, you had SAG and other guilds rise up, and then they became like the mortal enemies of the Academy because they saw the Academy as a company union. Um, the other thing that was going on in 20s Hollywood was a real image problem because Earlier in the 20s, there had been this string of very salacious scandals like the trial of Fatty Arbuckle and the murder of William Desmond Taylor and, you know, sex, drugs, murder, just all the time. <laughs> and um, just like now, there was a culture war where half the country felt that, you know, things had gotten too loose and unchristian, you know, in the years after World War II, like this was the roaring 20s. And, you know, the same people who had lobbied for prohibition successfully, then saw the movies as this thing that was corrupting the country. And um, so they saw Hollywood as this cesspool of sin. 
and there was a real threat of, of censorship laws. Um, so the the academy was also geared toward fixing that problem, which was to sort of change the image of of Hollywood from a cesspool to an academy. I mean, that sounds very lofty and important. And the Oscars kind of grew out of that second goal. Right, which also kind of uh, leads into the the imposition of the code, or kind of the gradual emergence of the code from yeah. you know, 1930. Yeah, that was all happening at the same time. Yeah, all part of this sort of uh, uh, attempt to, to police itself um, and also to kind of, you know, Play some of the roles that you'd expect from a from a union. We'll, we'll take care of you, and also we'll we'll hand out prizes, you know, to make you feel good, you know, uh, it, so that you know it itself wouldn't be um, policed or or sort of encroached upon by by sort of larger forces. Um, so it was kind of a, an ingenious, very ingenious move to to create this kind of amorphous organization that has sort of become this colossus <laughs> just by did to yeah. sort of be there a decade after decade. Um, when you went back and sort of were watching some of these um, early uh, sort of movies from the early years, and I, I kind of picture you just watching ridiculous numbers of movies, especially during the pandemic <laughs> while you were yeah, working oh, on no, this. Yeah, I watched some great movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what are some of the ones that kind of surprised you? And, and and you know, because we, when we go back and look at the the uh, the early years, um, I mean, I guess this applies to, to the Oscars, you know, decade after decade, but, but sort of our sense of kind of the canon of movie history doesn't necessarily align with, you know, but they were kind of handing out you know, awards to at the time. Um, although Sunrise, which is routinely, you know, listed as one of the greatest movies ever made, F.W. Murnau's uh, uh, Sunrise, um, which I actually mm-hmm. just saw at a screening at the Academy, which was fantastic. Uh, oh, that nice. was that was honored at the uh, at the very first awards, if I remember. Yeah. Correctly. So the very first Oscars in 1929 had two top prizes. One was for outstanding production, and that went to Wings, which is a big World War one uh battle movie in mm-hmm. you know that's like it's like star wars you know or like top mm-hmm. it's more like top it's like a top gun of 1929 it's right. you know planes and bombings and you know um very technically ambitious and then the other prize was for best unique and artistic picture which went to sunrise which is like a smaller more like a psychodrama and doesn't have that you know it's very technically impressive and innovative but not in that gigantic way I think what's interesting about that is that you still feel that tension at the Oscars between spectacle and, you know, a sort of a smaller, quieter kind of of movie. You know, if you compare like this year, we have Top Gun and Avatar and uh, on one side and then like women talking and, you know, what else? I, I like tar on the other side. Right. Um, so you maybe they should bring back the tension. unique artistic uh, category. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> well, they've tried that, and you know, a couple of years ago, they said they were going to start a category for best popular film, and right. everyone yeah. just laughed them into you know into back into the hedges, and they just dropped the whole thing because it. But maybe that would be a better way to do it. I don't know. Like most, you know, in any sense, like even if you look at years like 1953, which was the year that um, Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth won, this big, dumb circus spectacular over High Noon. Like, that's mm-hmm. the same dynamic. Like, High Noon to me is like the, a perfect movie. Um, right. But the Oscar went to the big, loud spectacle. Right. So I think that's always happening in every era. Yeah. Well, the um, the 1951 Oscars, which just strikes me just kind of, just the sort of height of absurdity, where for the best actress, 
category. Uh, you had, uh, you know, it was Norma Desmond versus Margot Channing. It was yeah. uh, uh, Gloria Swanson yeah. from Sunset Boulevard and Betty Davis from All About Eve. You know, two of the absolutely most overpowering, unforgettable, uh, you know, female performances in, in movie history. Um, the idea of like having to choose which of these is is better, you know, is ridiculous in itself, you know. Um, and then, you know, at the certain neither of them was at the ceremony, um, and neither of them won. I know. <laughs> Judy Holiday won. <laughs> for born yesterday. And I, honestly, I'm okay with that. I yeah, would have I mean, voted it's... for Mar- you know, Betty Davis as Margot Channing, which is one of my favorite movie performances ever um it's kind of shocking that she lost but it's also kind of shocking that Gloria Swanson lost um but I don't know Julie Hall Judy Holiday is wonderful in Born Yesterday and that's another sort of iconic role mm-hmm. and I also feel like comedic parts never win Oscars so um and she's so funny in that part you know it was a star making part for her mm-hmm. um I, she really should have had a bigger career but I, you know she died shortly after cancer but I don't know. I'm I'm like I'm at peace with the fact that mm-hmm. that she won that that best actress. Right. It would have been too insulting best. to give it to either one of the others. Uh, so, you know. Um yeah. So, but, but what are some other kind of categories? What are some other kind of discoveries that, that that you made just exploring the byways of, of movie history especially early on were there things that just really surprised well, you? There was one chapter that I saved to write for the end. I, I wrote the whole book out of order um mm-hmm. and then put it in chronological order, but the one that I put off and put off because I was intimidated by it was the blacklist chapter because mm-hmm. I just thought this is such a dark, huge subject, you know, really the darkest chapter in, in Hollywood history. And how am I going to tackle this? And yet I had some sense. And in the end, I felt I sort of found this like little forgotten Hollywood scan- Oscar scandal that told that sort of opened up this caper, which was um, in 1957. um the award for best motion picture story, a category that no longer exists, went to someone named Robert Rich. And Robert Rich was not there to receive it. It was for this movie called The Brave One. I mean, talk about the random movies that I watched for this mm-hmm. book. Like, no one's ever heard of this movie. It's about a Mexican boy trying to save his bull. Um, and so Robert Rich could not be located. Um, the producer of the movie said that he was an ex-GI who they met in Munich, and maybe he was in... Europe somewhere. Maybe he was in Australia. We don't know. Uh, Life magazine actually ran an illustration of Robert Rich based on their descriptions of him. (laughs) It's such a great article because it's all about this phantom winner. And it turned out that it was Dalton Trumbo, uh, the famously blacklisted uh, screenwriter who had been part of the Hollywood 10. He had served prison already. Um, And then he self-exiled to Mexico and got this idea for the movie but he was writing under fake names on the black market. And once he won, he realized that he could use this uh, press hubbub to turn the tables on the Academy and on the blacklist and try to destroy the blacklist by essentially creating a PR crisis for, mm-hmm. for the Oscars. Uh, and it was, it's, it's like such a fun story because, you know, so much of the blacklist is so depressing, but here's this, you know, eccentric writer who like, you know, would type on in his bathtub and his typewriter, uh, you know, just sort of using his wit and his cleverness and his words and scheming from behind that typewriter to, you know, like destroy his enemies. Um, and he kind of succeeded, you know, he famously broke the blacklist when he got a credit on uh, the movies Exodus and Spartacus in, in 1960. So I just, I love learning about 
that sort of secret history of the 1950s Oscars and how this little weird moment of this mystery man winning a minor award can open up this epic, you know, tale of, of, uh, you know, like this caper really this, right. it's like this it's like this adventure story of how these how these uh screenwriters sort of fought back you know yeah no it is i mean it is a perfect example of sort of oscar ridiculousness that also has a sort of heavy political kind of undertow to it but um yeah I, i've been thinking a lot about the blacklist too because the project that i'm currently working on which has entailed watching a huge number of, of fairly obscure movies is mm. about german speaking emigres um in southern california from the 20s you know, through to the early 50s, essentially movies, literature, mm. music, um, and architecture. Um, and uh, and so I've been reading a lot of the stories around High Noon, uh, which was um, directed by immigrant director Fred Zinneman. Um, mm. And and it, it was especially bleak for uh, you know, the emigrants who had, who had fled Nazi Germany uh, and Nazi domination of Europe to come here and then to be persecuted all over again. Uh, uh, yeah, and by... Bertolt Brecht was one of the original people dragged before HUAC. Yeah, yeah, and he fled the I next mean, day. Um, yeah, and he just said, "Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going home. Goodbye." <laughs> you know, every the, the Hollywood Ten went to prison, and and Bertolt Brecht was just out of there. Yeah, Hans Eisler, who who had been having a, a composer, uh, who had been having a, a pretty um successful career or kind of up and down career as a film composer um I was also forced to leave so it's yeah very very bleak stories but um uh oh, I have a I have a question for you Alex have you ever huh? seen the movie Salt of the Earth yes the yes I'd have to um I'll probably take a moment for all the details to come forward. About well, it's it. about you know it's it was made by a bunch of blacklisted people, yeah, yeah right, Michael right, Wilson, yeah, who yeah, I write about, yeah. and it's it's sort of about a real uh, uh, strike in I think it's Arizona or New Mexico, mm -hmm. um, and it's all about these Chicano workers, and it's a so it's you know a, a cast of um, it, it's a movie from the fifties. It very much feels like a movie from the fifties, except it's about something that no Hollywood movies from the fifties are about, which is like uh, people of color, women. It's like a very feminist pro labor movie. Um, I mean, it's just, it was made outside of the Hollywood system because it was this group of blacklisted people. I think one of them said something like we wanted a crime worth the punishment, you know, mm -hmm. like they had been blamed for, you know, there was so much paranoia that right. Hollywood screenwriters were, you know, infiltrating and spreading communist propaganda through the movies which if you watch any 50s hollywood movies is completely absurd <laughs> you know right. they're yeah. not exactly you know <laughs> the communist manifesto but this movie sort of is and it, it's like this very leftist film um and it's sort of shocking to watch that when you ask me about some of the surprises in terms of movies i watched this one was really um unlike anything else i'd ever seen because it's right. we're just not used to seeing a movie with leftist politics and feminist and you know chicano characters like you know in a black and white 50s movie yeah it, you see to some extent in the kind of mid 30s sort of late 30s um uh kind of leftist you know agenda sort of coming to the fore but all but very often in a very restrained uh kind of submerged uh way you know where you have a movie about the spanish civil war where the actual 
circumstances of, of the war is sort of barely mentioned and it's just all about the love story or some kind of basic uh, conflict but you know, yeah nonetheless, they, they were trying you know william Dieterle made these made these movies in, in the 30s but um i was also thinking about i mean how how far back do kind of recordings uh film and recordings of the ceremonies go like well, what's the kind of earliest you can actually experience the oscars in action um well i didn't find any recordings of the first year but then it started getting carried on radio so there's some mm -hmm. audio recordings um by the 40s or so um they the academy was filming them but they weren't being televised and also newsreels would uh film something so like um you the reason you can watch um hattie mcdaniel give her historic speech for gone with the wind when she was the first black person to win an oscar mm -hmm. is because they they sort of did it for the newsreels and then um you know the academy has on their youtube page very early ceremonies it's just like a one big wide shot like you can see 1951 even though it was on tv they they captured it for archival reasons i guess and then it started getting televised in 1953 that same year that um the greatest show on earth won um it was sort of the moment you could see the academy awards you could see how wrong they got it um <laughs> this is also the same year that singing in the rain didn't even get nominated for best picture so it was a wrong year all around <laughs> right um but that was the that was the first sort of that was the first time it was on TV and the Academy really resisted putting the awards on television because in the early years of television, TV was seen as the enemy of, of movies. Right. And no one was quite sure would the movies survive television. Um, so it seems sort of perverse to put the Academy awards on TV. Um, and yet they did it eventually because they were, uh, the Academy was in dire financial straits and kind of needed the money and they still make most of their money from selling the rights to TV. Right. And I guess in theory, it, it would have turned into a, a advertisement for for the movies uh, themselves, although you can kind of debate how much real sort of box office impact uh, uh, the ceremonies had. And certainly there are cases where a sort of lesser known movie got a very strong boost uh, yeah. from the Oscars. But then, you know, the sort of basic economics of, of Hollywood have not really been that dependent. <laughs> um, oh, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I guess, I mean, what always, we always have to remember with these awards and what they quote unquote get wrong or you know, is, I mean, that it, it is like a, 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 these are industry awards, you know, and, and, and so it has so much to do, not with the kind of pure abstract quality of the films or the performances as judged by you know sort of completely disinterested observers but you know these are co-workers you know and and colleagues oh, yeah. so of course personalities come into play and in these sort of rhythms of who is sort of feels due for an award at any given moment and and uh, that that kind of ebb ebb and flow oh yeah i mean i always say that if you look to the oscars as a barometer of cinematic worth you're going to be perpetually <laughs> disappointed or enraged Right. <laughs> um, but if you look at them as a, a kind of window into how the industry sees itself, then they're very interesting. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's at the heart of the Oscars is a fallacy, which is that you can rank art, which you can't. You know, art isn't meant to be ranked. There is no best picture. There's no best actor. It's like that's not a thing. It's a completely subjective. It's just the, the sum of a lot of people's opinions who are very interested in, you know, interested in the sense that they are they're interested parties they're they work in the industry 
So there, you know, and and then of course with the rise of modern campaigning, there's a million different factors that go into who wins and who loses and who gets nominated. It's you know it has so much to do with who has a campaign budget and a marketing department and right. who people think you know should win because they've worked a long time and they haven't won yet. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the Academy Awards is that they're absurd. And that's the fun of it. And it's fun to right. like movies shouldn't be ranked, but they should be discussed. And I feel like the the part of the appeal of the Oscars is that we can we can all sort of argue about what they're getting wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of campaigning, I mean, you have this really fascinating and also unsettling uh, chapter about uh, Harvey Weinstein and the great sort of debacle of um, saving Private Ryan versus Shakespeare in love. Yeah. Um, but you know how how early did kind of conscious campaigning begin? Because I certainly have the sense of, you know, from the early years reading uh, biographies and sort of histories that the, that they they really weren't taken that seriously, you know, by the performers themselves. Or, you know, they 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 would be, you know, delighted if they won and very disappointed if they didn't, but but the idea of of campaigning would have been pretty foreign it feels oh like yeah people well the, the first the first official like campaign ad was placed in the 30s by uh louis b mayer for a movie uh called all all wilderness and it, it showed like uh leo the lion for you know, the mascot of mgm like grabbing an oscar or something it was like so blatant um and and the movie was nominated so it didn't do anything um but you know like yeah campaigns were nothing like they were after weinstein they were really you know People would place ads. They would have maybe some cocktail parties and screenings at people's homes in Beverly Hills, and um, but there wasn't this jockeying and politicking. That was really Weinstein coming in, and you know he saw himself as an underdog because they were the uh, New York company, they were the indie company. They came out with these edgy movies like The Crying Game and Pulp Fiction, and so he really felt justified in doing absolutely everything, leaving no stone unturned to get these movies Oscars because that was his whole strategy for keeping this company afloat. And the finances of Miramax were always a mess. Like they were always constantly on the verge of going bankrupt until they were bought by Disney. Um, and so that's what they did. And once Weinstein did it, especially for Shakespeare and love, then everyone else in Hollywood realized that they had to copy what he was doing, the so-called Weinstein playbook to keep up. It was like uh, this arms race. So then suddenly you had everyone hiring tons of consultants, having nonstop events and press and calling voters and la 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 la. And you know that's how you had this got this bloated ecosystem where millions and millions <clears throat> of dollars are spent and people spend months and months just only working on the Oscars. Right. Yeah. Which is it just seems like such a waste. I mean to watch. You know the supremely talented Kate Blanchett. Um, you know, devoting months of of her of her precious career to to just going to events and and giving interviews and going to screenings. It just it just seems like. Uh, I mean, is there any way this could ever be reined back, or is it kind of this? Well, thing it has actually where... been reined back. You know, right. like since the heyday of I would like the the two thousands when Miramax had really created this model that everyone else was trying to recreate um the academy realized that they had to step in and regulate this like there's a quote from one of the administrators from the academy in 1999 the heat of all the shakespeare and love stuff where he said well we don't want to be big brother well eventually the academy realized they had to be big brother and they mm -hmm. started 
writing rules to stop whatever people were coming up with, you know? So for instance, now you can't have a uh, reception if you don't have a screening in the same venue. So there used to be a lot more like luncheons and parties that where you could come, maybe you would go 10 blocks away and see a screening afterward. Maybe you wouldn't. And people would just, I mean, Academy members could go from basically Thanksgiving through March without paying for a meal because they just <laughs> right. go to these constant, you know, like schmoozing events. Right. So that has actually been reined in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit like campaign finance reform, I suppose. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. very much like campaign finance reform for for political uh, for um, presidential politics. And you also have like the sort of instead of primary states, you have you know like the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes and um, you know the Toronto Film Festival. So it's it's very parallel. Right. So you're going to the Oscars this year are going to be on the scene? I am. Yeah. So I started going for the New Yorker in 2017. And now I go more or less every year. Um, I did finally buy a tux because I had been <laughs> renting a tux every year from Men's Warehouse and then expensing it because I never I didn't think I would keep going back and back. And then finally right. this year, I thought, well, it seems like I'm going to the Oscars every year and I need a tux. So I actually bought one, uh, you know, a very fancy Men's Warehouse number. So I'm, I'll be, I'll be really wowing them on the red carpet. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully there'll be some giant unexpected catastrophe this year. I, I don't know what it, oh, what it could be, but uh, let's yeah. hope. I mean, I'm, I'm a lover of Oscar drama and chaos. Yeah. Um, so in terms of just writing the book itself, um, and this is something I struggle with a bit. I mean, how, how do you sort of go about uh, dividing up your time between working on the book and you know, doing a regular work for the magazine or, or, or did you just take time off? To- I didn't. I mean, I, it's impossible. It was, it was horrible. Uh, honestly, you know, it took me four years to write the book. I was a, about 14 months late with it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. HarperCollins was not too worried about that until they finally were like, if we want this out for the 2013, 2023 Oscars, you need to have it in by X date. And I was like, mm-hmm. ah! um, but no, I mean, I didn't take a book leave and the New Yorker keeps me very busy and um, it was really hard to do both. So I selfishly want to ask you, how do you do it? <laughs> well, yeah, by taking 10 years to read each book, <laughs> which is sort of not the best solution, but um, you know, it's, it is, um, yeah, I mean, I've never taken a real book leave for my first book. I took a sort of partial leave. I, I, I stopped writing longer pieces and just sort of wrote a bunch of sort of shorter columns for about six months. And, um, and, uh, um, I was still getting paid, but I, I almost immediately ran out of money, which was one of <laughs> motivation not to do this again. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I don't think I actually got appreciably that much more done, you know, than, than I than I would have just sort of continuing to work both on the the book and some, you know, shorter pieces side by side. It's I just I feel like I'm not one of these people who can disappear into a cabin in the woods, you know, and and work right, kind of full time. Right. I feel like it would just turn out. Like the shining, but not as exciting. <laughs> not as exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always think of it as not just a time management problem, but a psychological problem because, you know, well, I always think of it like writing an article, even a long New Yorker article, is sort of like swimming in a lap pool. And then writing a book is like deep sea diving. Like you have to go down very slowly, you have to come right. up very slowly, or else like the pressure changes and your head explodes or something. And like, just thinking about like, I, when I'm writing a book, like I want to get immersed in it and like dream about it and like, feel like there's this alternative universe that I'm living in. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to do that. And then also like crank out a 
profile or a talk of the town piece, like, because that there's always something that is due like that week, you know, or that, that month, you know, right. that is begging for your attention. Yeah. What I've done with the books, um, uh, the, the two longer books that I've written uh, has been really to sort of carve out periods of time, maybe sort of a few weeks where, where I sort of front load my schedule. I get a lot of kind of magazine writing done. And then there's a little bit of a, of a pause um, before the sort of next major assignment comes along. And and so I can kind of plunge in and it, and there's a little bit of a deadline. Like I, I know that, you know, fairly soon the the window is going to close and, and I'm going to have to go back to, you know, my next magazine assignment. So motivation to get, you know, say most of a chapter written or, or at least to make, you know, mm. some kind of uh, progress. And it, it also maybe seems to help for me to to work very hard on an aspect of it, then step away and then, you know, come back, you know, a month later, or a couple of months later and, and continue uh, working. Um, yeah, so that's like you the, have to hold a lot in your head. And if you start to spread yourself too thin, you you just lose like all the stuff you have stored up in your brain that right. is for the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when I when I would sit down to to you know go back to it, I mean, I always have to allow for a few days of just basically like opening up the file for the chapter on my computer, mm-hmm. staring at it, sighing in despair, <laughs> and closing it. You know, <laughs> it's like it would take me a few days to like even feel as though the the it wasn't completely hopeless, you know, that I could sort of sort of step back into it. But um, uh, yeah, it, it is sort of difficult to strike the balance. But but um, you know, I, I haven't for this new project. I'm still at the stage of accumulating kind of monstrous piles of material. So that's something I can do. Yeah, know, in between everything else, very very easily. I just always have another book that I'm reading or another movie that I'm going to watch. Yeah. I mean, I also want to ask you, Alex. Um, so my first book, Her Again, it was very contained. Um, and I actually did take off work and I just spent a year and a half just working on it. It's about Meryl Streep's life in the 70s. So it was short. It I got it done fast. And I was basically only thinking about that. But, you know, this book is a big sprawling history that took mm-hmm. a lot of years. It covers a, a century of, you know, cultural history and um, is sort of large in scope. And you have written two books that are very large and sweeping in scope. And um, I mean, like, how did you get through it? Because I had definitely many points in like the middle where I just told myself like, is this ever going to be over? Like, is this ever going to be done? Is this ever going to be like in any sort of shape it just you get to this this sort of middle place where it just seems totally uh impossible and hopeless yeah yeah, and then i just kept going and going until i finally just got was finished and got to the end and then sort of looked back on this horrifically large file (laughs) and like tried to turn it into something but I, i i'm curious to hear about how you navigated that process of just writing a yeah. big long book with tons and tons of history covering yeah. decades and decades. Oh no, I had many moments of just just sort of total despair and 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 panic about it uh, in the middle. I mean, the thing about writing the magazine articles, even the the long articles that go for five thousand words or more, I could I could always kind of see the whole thing in my head. You know, I just after kind of working for a bit after doing my research and kind of making some notes. You know, and this sort of out in the world jogging or, or some other activity, I'd be kind of 
thinking over the piece and I can sort of see the shape of it, you know, um, mm-hmm. sort of a few different components that are going to fit together. And okay, that's a sense of where it's going to begin and where it's going to end, you know, and that that's just a, a, a great kind of, there's a sense of security, you know, as you go about sort of writing the piece itself that you can sort of see it in here. The books, I could, I can never see the whole thing in my head, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it was sort of the scary process of, of discovery, you know, uh, sort of my initial idea of what the book might be versus what was emerging, you know, on, on paper, mm-hmm. which seemed to have just kind of a momentum of its own, you know, a kind of, and a, and a, a sort of, there'd be a certain voice that's, you know, starts to emerge that is kind of unique to this book, you know, uh, or just turning in different directions. And so, I mean, I, I've, I've learned to be comfortable with the discomfort of not knowing how exactly it's all going to turn out and moments in the middle of it where I feel like it's just, you know, completely hopeless, you know, because I've sort of come through this before. So presumably <laughs> I'll come through this again, but. Um, well, yeah, but you started out like this. I mean, you know, my first book, I was like not convinced I could even write a book. So I chose like a, a very containable subject. I was like, it's about one person is about 10 years in her life. I know I can get to the end of this. But, you know, you came out of the gate with like, oh, a book about the history of like the entire century of music. I mean, right. Well, no, but it wasn't it wasn't easy. There was like an infamous meeting that I had with my uh, editor, I think the Unisquare Cafe or somewhere where where I I was sort of in the middle of it. I was coming out of a crisis and, and we still joke about this that I I could just kind of I started kind of like shaking in the middle of the lunch. <laughs> it was just kind of like having a almost like a sort of live nervous breakdown in front of him as, as I was you know discussing the condition of the book. So um yeah so that I mean I really did almost lose my mind with 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 that first book. Uh the 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 second one which was even more protracted was you know nonetheless I I kind of had had faith that that something uh was going to emerge no matter no matter how unmanaged. Well, how long did each of them take? Uh the first one took seven years in this and Wagnerism the second book, listen to this, just a bunch of essays. So it was with some original material, but <clears throat> basically a completely different kind of undertaking. And uh the third book, Wagnerism, uh did take 10 years. Um but um, Jesus, 10 but, years. Uh, but it was a kind of what I learned also is that you just that you just kind of you're putting one brick on top of another it just felt like you know a, a construction project you know um and yeah. that that yeah. i became with the books i've i just have to be much less hung up on on the sort of finery of each sentence um and actually i think mm-hmm. you know a book that is sort of written in the same way as a magazine article where sort of the beginning of each chapter you're, you're sort of to do something to kind of grab the reader's attention and and mm-hmm. sort of these sort of verbal fireworks and then you know then some more verbal fireworks at the end you know I, I think a book written that way uh is is tiring and i think you know with with a book i realized i can actually simplify my language just be much more expository and and it really is sort of putting one thing on top of another and just sort of creating this mountain material and then shaping it and and for me it sometimes feels like i'm just creating the illusion that there's some argument here that there's some sort of sense of direction for how this sort of right, chapter right. fits in with the next and looks you know these these, these little tricks but uh but but uh, you know each of these books i've just been i've just been i've been so in love with the material itself that that that, that sort of keeps me going you know i just i right. enjoy the immersion um and what did it feel like to actually bring them out into the world because if you're saying this is 10 years of your life on Wagnerism I mean I thought four years was a lot 
you know, and I'm looking at parts of this book and thinking, wow, um, I wrote this in 2018. Um, <laughs> right. That was a long time ago, you know, before the pandemic, before, you know, like, you know, my nephew wasn't born. My grandmother was alive. It's like so many things have changed since then. Like, this is a different person who was writing about, you know, the 1951 Best Actress race. But right. people are now responding to it now. They're reading it now uh, and as all one giant thing. And it's strange, you know, it's strange to have like this one containable thing that can, that, you know, encompasses a, a very long drawn out period of my own life. And I'm, I'm curious how that felt for you to actually yeah. like one day it's in bookstores, you know? <laughs> right. Well, it was very different, you know, with the two books um, for various reasons. I mean, the first book was a surprisingly successful given the sort of somewhat you know obscure subject matter and um i i just had a i was just very lucky to have a, a kind of amazing experience uh with it and and um and uh the sort of year afterward where there's continuing kind of attention to the book and um uh, wagnerism um had the bad luck to come out you know in the fall of uh 2020 um in the midst of the mm -hmm. pandemic the presidential election, um, George Floyd, uh, everything else, and and so it just didn't quite feel like the moment where everyone wanted to focus on, on a you know problematic nineteenth-century German composer <laughs> and his enormous and complicated <laughs> legacy, um, and I wasn't able to enjoy any of the kind of just you know going to bookstores and seeing the book and and talking you know to people speaking in bookstores so it, it was oh, a bit right, yeah. sad you know uh in that sense but um but also you just you also learn this this detachment and you can sort of devote 10 years of your life to one book and it's kind of a, a phenomenon and you devote 10 years to another and it's less of a phenomenon but i i feel fundamentally lucky to be doing this at all you know i just i just i'm just amazed every day that that people are still letting me <laughs> write about the stuff that i care about um and that i'm able to to publish books and sort of everything else is, is kind of extra you know so uh that's sort of the, the 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 way i try to um keep keep sane through the the ups and downs um well, i'm i'm impressed that you're already on to the next one because i feel like i've just like panted to the finish line and now <laughs> I just want to, you know, I just want to see what it's like to have one full-time job, which is being a New right. Yorker writer and not having a big book deadline over my head. And that will take years and years. I know I'll get the hunger back, like to, to do something like that, especially now that I know I, I, I can, I can get to the finish line of a, you know, sweeping history. Um, but man, do I not be on the mood right now? <laughs> right. Well, of course you don't. Yeah. Again. I mean, after each of my big books, I've sworn never to do it again. And like, why not just have one job? You know, they, they pay me fine and use the extra time to go for walks, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's the, it, it took a couple of years before the kind of the hunger came back and I launched into this, um, uh, new project, but, um, but yeah, just the, the, the opportunity to, delve into something you know so deeply um uh mm. and and sort of to devote you know years of your life to exploring every facet of it and then sort of using actually you know relatively little of the material you accumulate you know you can never fit it all into, into the book right? but right. It's somehow it's not lost it's it's kind of just been this this um education that you've undertaken for yourself which just enriches yourself i especially felt that with wagnerism i felt like i was just vastly enriched by the process of of writing that book it just opened up so many kind of new avenues to me um i'm sure that's been mm -hmm. the case 
for you too. That, that, and then somehow there's usually kind of some in, in each book. There's like a seed of the next one, you know. So maybe somewhere in your Oscar book is kind of your your next book, kind of waiting to to come out. Um, I don't know. Maybe I mean, my first book was <laughs> got its title from Meryl Streep's Oscar speech. True. Yeah. Her again when she said, oh, when they called my name, I was like, I could hear half of America going, oh, come on, why her again? <laughs> right. But whatever. <laughs> you know, I was in love with her uh, Oscar speech, her award speeches. I used to like memorize them. And that kind of is what that in a roundabout way, it's got me to write that book about her. And then mm -hmm. You know, it opens with the 2016 Academy Awards when she won. Or, yeah, 2016. Wait, no, 2012 Academy Awards when she won for the Iron Lady. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. Maybe there's some seed of something in in this very large book, Oscar Wars. But right now, I just want to take a nap. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. A little later, after all of the the uh, book launch festivities will be able to nap um but um <laughs> that's a fantastic book congratulations uh so much on, on pulling so much hollywood history you know together with with the, the history of the oscars uh themselves um it just it's it's the kind of it's the kind of story where where you sometimes you're you're using the the oscars itself the oscar itself um as a, as a way into all these other stories, you know, um, and as a way of sort of connecting them together. So I think it really works beautifully that way. Well, thanks, Alex. Thanks for reading it. Thanks for chatting. Sure. It's great yeah. to see you. And, yep. um, and uh, yeah, I got to um, make it to Skylight next time I'm in town. If I, if I have time going, when I'm, I'm going to, you know, attend the Oscars and I have to do a lot of work, but I, I'm pretty sure I have some signed copies there. You sure do. Thank you both. That was an incredible discussion. Such a pleasure, such a joy to listen to. Uh, Michael, I had a, a quick question while I was listening. You know, we've got the Academy Awards coming up, the 95th edition, as you mentioned. Um, what lesson did you learn while writing this book that you are excited to apply to this year's ceremony? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the subtext with this year is about... Um, Hollywood's anxiety about how movies are consumed now. I mean, it's been such a a, a, a tumultuous years, especially with the pandemic, the rise of streaming. I don't, you know, people don't quite know what a movie is anymore, much less how to make people go see them. And I think you see that in the nominees this year, like for Best Picture, you have these gigantic big franchise movies like Avatar and Top Gun against like Tar and women talking and it's like i think that ref and you know those little movies just are not making money at the box office and you don't have a lot of movies in the middle anymore like the, the mid-budget adult dramas that studios used to make like kramer versus kramer in terms of endearment and i think maybe the reason or one of the reasons that everything ever all at once has really broken out is because it's kind of the exception to all those rules. Like it's, it's this original movie that's a big spectacle and it's an, but it's an indie movie and it's a big box office hit. And um, it also has a lot of heart and great characters. And it's about, you know, an Asian middle-aged immigrant and, you know, yeah. and her queer daughter. I mean, it, it's kind of has this like crazy whole package of things. And I think, I think people are in the industry are, gravitating to it because it's um it's like the unicorn that you know 
may point the way forward for this very weird moment in, in movies where it may just be a way of forgetting that there that those problems exist for for a brief glorious moment thank you michael and thank you alex this has been a blast uh even more excited for the oscars now um just a reminder to all of our listeners uh you can stop by skylight books to pick up a signed copy of oscar wars uh, you could also visit our website and purchase uh, any of Michael's or Alex's books. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, Michael, uh, have fun wearing that tux that you bought. Uh, and, and have a good day, you too. Thank you. It's great to chat. Thanks, Mick. Thanks, Alex. Great to see okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time. <laughs>